Good afternoon and welcome to the 206th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today is a special Inauguration Day memorial episode. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 20th, 2021, there are 2,067,143 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 24,331,161 cases in the United States. There are 403,952 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 400,292 reported yesterday. Today, January 20th, 2021, at noon, Joseph R. Biden became the 46th president of the United States. COVID-19 is certainly a global pandemic with a story to be told of every nation and across and beyond national borders. But in the United States, the suffering and the loss of life is bound up with the failures of the Trump administration, failures of Donald Trump himself personally, failure to plan for the disaster, to react seriously, to tell the truth, also to not spread lies and disinformation, to not divide the public along lines of ideology, race, age, or region. The manifest failure of now former President Trump to take seriously his duties or even to show common decency or modesty when presented his deadly failings was something that those of us who are, have been concerned about the pandemic have been faced with every single day, that is to say most Americans. And so with the transition of power to President Biden, I and many others are trying to lay aside anger today, bewilderment. I'm marking the day with some hope, a measured hope given the suffering and dying of so many, but hope nonetheless that the United States federal government and change course, help bend the curve, deliver and administer vaccine and facilitate a recovery and memorial process that we desperately need. I'd like to quote a little bit of President Biden's inaugural address today. He said, few people in our nation's history have been more challenged or found a time more challenging or difficult than the time we're in now. A once in a lifetime, a once in a century virus that silently stalks the country. It's taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. And my first act as president, I'd like to ask you to join me in a moment of silent prayer to remember all those who we lost this past year to the pandemic, those 400,000 fellow Americans, moms, dads, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. We will honor them by becoming the people and the nation we know we can and should be. So I ask you, let's say a silent prayer for those who've lost their lives, those left behind, and for our country. I was impressed 
by his speech, many levels. Mostly I was impressed because it was the first time since the pandemic started that I'd heard the president of the United States call the people of this country to pay some sort of tribute and honor to the victims of this pandemic. And that really meant something to me. In that mindset, I've asked five guests to join COVID calls today for a memorial session. We've done a few of these uh, previously in COVID calls. Each person's gonna come on in their turn, read an obituary, and then we'll have a short discussion as to why they chose that life to honor. I wanna thank everybody for joining us today on COVID calls. And in advance, I wanna thank my guests and I'm gonna bring up the first one now. My Drexel University colleague, Michael Udell. Michael, can you introduce yourself a little bit? It's good to see you. Sure. Uh, nice to see you too, Scott, and thanks for having me on. I'm Mike Udell. Um, I chair the Department of Community Health and Prevention at the School of Public Health at Drexel University. Um, I am a public health historian and ethicist by training, and um, it is great to be here today. And, and Scott, let me just say I was on COVID calls probably within the first couple of weeks of you right. starting this when we thought um, there would be some public health response to this deadly pandemic and we made predictions. I would hate to go back and listen to what we thought would transpire now, but I see that you're at number 206, which is uh, you know, a testament to your, um, you know, your dedication to drawing attention um, to this ongoing public health crisis and disaster. Um, and also, you know, it, it speaks volumes of, about um, the failures that we are facing as a society that um, given that it's inauguration day, as you pointed out, um, maybe we can pivot to, to something better because it has been one heck of a 10 months. Yeah, like maybe actual governing. And and you were on with David Barnes and it was a tremendous discussion and it was so early on, um, the numbers of deaths, I'll look it up in a minute, um, was staggering us, to us then and it must have been, um, by our perspective today, it would seem very, very low. I'm, I'm gonna absent myself now, uh, Michael, and I'm gonna let you um, talk about the life story that you wanna share today and thanks again for coming. Great, and thanks for having me, Scott. Um, and hi, everybody. Uh, when when Scott asked me to do this, um, one one of the things that has has struck me in these moments, in 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 the middle of all of the unimaginable suffering um, that we have faced, both individually and as a collective in our society, um, is something personal for me. In that, uh, I like uh, many of you have not seen. Um, members of our family for 10 months now. Um, and it's been a year since I've seen uh, my mother who is in her 70s um, and her boyfriend who's eight, you know, in his late 70s and my in-laws who were also in their 70s. Um, and you know, on the one hand, I feel incredibly lucky that they haven't gotten sick. Um, and I feel really blessed that they've all received their first doses of the vaccine in the last couple of weeks. But Unfortunately, because the way this pandemic was mishandled, um, older people have been suffering uh, disproportionately and in just awful um, ways with devastating consequences. So I went to the Philadelphia Inquirer, our hometown newspaper, um, and I and I and I looked for um, 
an obituary of people who were towards the end of their life, but yet their life was cut short. And I found a deeply moving uh, double obituary of a couple who died days apart, Mary Schneider, 91, and George Schneider, 88, um, who died in, in May of last year. Um, and the headline says that they loved doing everything together. So Mary and George Schneider loved attending events together. Everything from Phillies games to Philadelphia Orchestra concerts, from helping out their church to dining all around Center City. They were incredibly close, said daughter uh, Mary Lee Sander. They had very similar interests. They did everything together except for work. They had a 17-game ticket plan for the Phillies, and they had a season ticket plan for the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Opera and the Chamber Music Society. The Schneiders married 63 years, died days apart. Mary 91 on Friday, April 24th, and George 88 on Monday, April 27th, from complications related to the coronavirus. They lived in Northeast Philadelphia. They were very supportive, their daughter said. As a child growing up in Philadelphia, I was a competitive figure skater and my sister was a competitive pianist. So they were just incredibly dedicated to taking us everywhere we needed to be for our activities. Mrs. Schneider, a graduate of Kensington High School, lived in Mexico for 10 years as a child and her mother died before returning to Philadelphia to live with her father. She returned to Mexico as an adult with her church and was proud to be the trip interpreter. She visited again late in life. For mom's 80th birthday, my sister and I took dad, her and dad to Mexico City. So that was really fun, Saunders said. We stayed in a B&B in Mexico City. She remembered the parks and churches and things about her childhood. After working part-time at a physician's office near where she lived, Mrs. Schneider took a job as a bookkeeper for a financial advisor in Center City and helped run his office. She would get dropped off by her husband at the Holmesburg station every day and take the train in. She stayed for almost 30 years, working into her mid-80s. Mr. Schneider graduated from Frankfurt High School and received a bachelor's degree from Drexel University and a master's degree from Temple University. He taught business for more than 35 years at Massbound Vocational Technical High School. During baseball season, he was particularly devoted to the Phillies, keeping score at every game he attended and laying out the rules for those who accompanied him. He was an old school baseball fan, his daughter said. You had to be in your seat before the first pitch. Unless you needed to use the bathroom, you didn't get up from your seat until the game was over. It didn't matter when it was. We have a picture of him in blankets and rain gear. And my sister was one, uh, and my sister has one where it's freezing on September 30th, and he's the only one in his section at Citizens Bank Park. Mr. Schneider was also a witty conversationalist, according to his daughter, bringing a smile to everyone he met. She and her sister loved the letters they used to write them after they moved away from Philadelphia. The Schneiders each had a real curiosity, their daughter said, and loved to ask questions. When they attended coffee hours at First Presbyterian Church in Center City, they were always the last ones to leave, she said. In addition to their daughters, the couple are survived by two grandchildren. Yeah, thank you for reading that. What was it that uh, uh, drew you to that one, Michael? You know, I, there was there was a, I mean, two things. As I said, there's a personal aspect where, you know, I my wife and I have older parents who we haven't seen, and we have been terrified this whole year um, that they would end up 
um, getting sick and potentially dying. Um, and I think that for so many of us, whether it be for our elderly or older parents, or for those whom we love who have, um, you know, risk factors for, for severe COVID, um, it's been a year of fear. And to read a story about this lovely couple um, who led a rich life with their family um, and with baseball and music and dancing to be taken um, in such an awful way, partly, you know, because um, a pandemic doesn't, you know, a, a, a pandemic comes along like this and we can't predict who we will lose, but at the same time, um, you know, some of the details of their death aren't in here, but they were older and we know that um, older people in America are incredibly vulnerable to this disease and have suffered in awful ways. And it, I, I think we forget that. And I also am angry because of the way in which our leadership over the last year has essentially written off a large portion of the population. Um, to suffer quietly, alone, to die alone, away from their families, separated from people they loved. And that makes me very angry. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about as a historian is I think we will need new examples to teach pandemics going forward, right? We, you know, I, I, I teach, you know, uh, the, the pandemic flu from 1918-19. I teach about other outbreaks earlier and you know, we talk about things like um, people's rights and autonomy and when should we force people to be vaccinated or encourage vaccination or persuade people to be vaccinated and wear masks and stuff like that. But there's another aspect to this last year that has really just sat in me about sort of the, 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 the meanness of the last year and the selfishness. And I am not sure what to do with that. And when I read the fact that these, these this lovely couple lost their lives and, and and perhaps didn't need to, I am left with those, those, those difficult feelings. Well, you know, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I talked to my father uh, uh, on January 4th on COVID calls. And one of the things he, we had talked about throughout the year, and, and this re other people had shared that this resonated with their discussions with parents and grandparents, was they didn't feel like it was okay to complain if they weren't sick, but that the loss of that time with children, with grandchildren, with friends is, in, is huge. And I think it sort of mirrors the loss of time with friends for kindergarten, first, second, third grade, people who are learning the social life too. Um, and it's, um, I think that's been a real loss and it's been hard for people to talk about because um, they don't want to seem like they're complaining, right? Like, like you missed your bridge game or your golf game with your buddies. That's something you shouldn't complain about when people are dying every day, but it does matter. Yes. The other thing is, and I love the detail about the 17 game Phillies package. That's a really great detail because if you're a Phillies fan, you know, like that's for people who save their money. They get the 17 game package means like you can't just get the full season package. That means you've really, you know, you're saving, but it's really important to you. It, that tells me exactly the kind of Phillies fan fans yeah. that they were. And, you know, my grandparents 
certainly, who I knew very well, they, um, there was a sense that you worked hard and you deferred, you know, happiness in a sense, travel, you know, those kind of frivolous things. You deferred those till after you retired. That really sticks with me with the obituaries you read, too. Yeah, uh, there was a, there's another piece, and I'll paste the link in the box. Uh, it was an op-ed in the time in the New York Times um, from earlier in the month by uh, Toby Levine, who um, was a Holocaust survivor, and talks about this pandemic year and how she lost her childhood, and now she's lost a year to this awful situation. Um, and I, and I, I think we really need to think about, you know, our, our, what is our moral core as a society to essentially have seeded so much of this, the, to, to watch this government failure in real time. Um, and it's just devastated lives. And I've thought about that time lost for, especially for older Americans. Well, Michael, um, thanks for, sharing that today and for this discussion and we're going to say goodbye to you now and bring in our our next reader stay healthy thanks you too thanks for having me on and now we're going to bring on a familiar face from earlier this week carla kearns carla it's good to see you again would you mind just for those who didn't see COVID calls earlier this week introducing yourself sure my name is Carla Kearns. I'm a professor of uh, medical ethics and medicine at the University of Kansas in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, and I am uh, here to read the obituary of Charles Richard Dorn. Um, the obituary is from the Journal of the American um, Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Dorn, Ohio State, class of 57, 86 years old, Columbus, Ohio, died April 27, 2020. He was a professor and past chair of the Department of Veterinary Preventive Medicine at the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine, retiring in 1992 as a professor emeritus. During his tenure, Dr. Dorn also served as a professor at the Ohio Agricultural Research and Development Center. He began his career as a staff veterinarian at Stark Animal Hospital in Canton, Ohio. Dr. Dorn sub subsequently served in the Air Force, worked as an inspector for the Cincinnati Health Department, earned his master's in public health from Harvard University, and was a research specialist in cancer with the California Department of Public Health, serving as a visiting lecturer in epidemiology at the University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. In 1968, he joined the University of Missouri as an associate professor in both the School of Medicine and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Dorn eventually served as professor at the Veterinary College before moving in 1975 to the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. During his career, he also served as a visiting scientist in the epidemiology branch at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and was a Fogarty International Senior Fellow at the Central Public Health Laboratory in London. In retirement, Dr. Dorn spent a year as a Fulbright Scholar at the National Autonomous University of Mexico School of Medicine and worked part-time for a few years as a community relations specialist for the Fed Federal Emergency Management Agency as a science officer for the American Kennel Club's Canine Health Foundation in Aurora, Ohio. 
He was a diplomat and pre past president of the American College of Veterinary Preventive Medicine, served on what is now known as the AVMA Convention Education Program Committee, was a past member of several U.S. Animal Health Association committees, and served as a president of what? Apologies. of what was known as the Association of Teachers of Veterinary Public Health and Preventive Medicine. Dr. Dorn also served in leadership roles with the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges, Council on Educators, and was a past trustee of the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. He consulted for several entities, including the National Institutes of Health, the National Academy of Sciences, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the World Health Organization. Dr. Dorn was a member of the Ohio VMA, Missouri and Ohio Public Health Associations, Veterinary Cancer Society, and the Society of Environmental Geochemistry and Health. In 1991, he received the ACVPM Hewling Jennings Award. In 1992, he was named as Danish alumnus of the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. He served 20 years in the Air Force Reserves, attaining the rank of Colonel, and in 1982 was a recipient of a Commendation Medal. He's survived by his wife, Barbara Jane, a son and two daughters, and three grandchildren. Memorials may be made, uh, and it goes on. Thank you for reading that. What an extraordinary career. It, it really was. He was, so the reason I chose this obituary is first and foremost that this is my father-in-law, and therefore the grandfather of my son. Um, and he was a veterinary preventive medicine expert. So if I wanted to know how to prevent or manage or treat a zoonotic pandemic, he would have been the first person I called. Um, he would have had a lot to say about how the transmission occurred, about how person-to-person -person transmission occurred, and about um, the public health measures that we should have and didn't take um, to manage the pandemic early on um, in China, in the United States, and around the world. And so it is, I, you know, ironic seems so overused these days, but, um, but it just strikes me that, um, that his loss early in the pandemic um, was um, a powerful indictment of our disregard of that kind of expertise that he dedicated his life to. I also had to answer a question that my son asked me. He said, Mommy, why did Grandpa die of COVID? Didn't he know about masks? And I explained to him that Grandpa died early in the pandemic. And I left out because it was too hard to explain to a seven-year-old that grandpa lived in a retirement community where um, we have utterly failed to protect our most vulnerable. A lot of resonance there with what we were just talking about with Michael Udell. And he was living, at that, you said he, he was 86. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Still actively following science, actively following the news? 
Sometimes uh, in obituaries, somebody who's so um, professionally um, accomplished, I always wonder a little bit behind the scenes too. Could tell us a little bit about like what made him laugh? Like what were his, you know, obviously he worked a lot, but right. what were some of the other things that really inspired him? So grew up on a farm in southern Ohio um, in a town that at the last census had about 400 people. Um, and he traveled the world from there. And so it was really um, a really a recognition. You know, he was um, he was a child of the Depression. So somebody who much preferred people to things and um, had just tremendous curiosity. When he was in his professional prime, his wife um, ran uh, the International Wives Club at Ohio State University, um, where they got to meet people from all over the world. Um, and so he really, the, the last memories I have of him, actually the last pictures I have of him with my son, who's his grandson, they're dancing together. And they've just taken a walk through um, through the gardens near uh, his home, and they both picked up um, and collected leaves and rocks and were um, were trading them back and forth. I love that story, and I've never heard anyone describe that that depression generation as well as you just did. That because he lived through the depression, he preferred people to things. That's my grandmother. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is that people of that generation or people who've known people from that generation can really connect with that. Yeah. Would you mind saying a little bit about how the family coped with a funeral and grieving process yeah. in the midst of all this since since he was your father-in-law? So let me let me take a step back from that. When he first developed a runny nose, his daughter got worried that it might be COVID, but it was um, April and they couldn't get him tested. It took um, six days to get um, a test, which they finally did. And so it was Saturday night, we got a call that he was positive. And I'm the doctor in the family. So I started calling my friends and saying, what should we do? Should we insist that he be transferred to the hospital? Should we watch him where he is? Um, you know, can he was, um, he was in a setting in his retirement community where they could monitor his oxygen levels. So they did that. Um, we got together with all his children and my medical specialty is palliative and end of life care. And so I talked them through a number of potential scenarios. What, what if he got short of breath? What if he had to go to the hospital? What if he had to be put on a ventilator? And I strongly advised them that if he reached the point where he needed to be put on a ventilator, that we shouldn't do that because the mortality for men in their 80s with COVID on ventilators in April, as best we understood, was so high that it was not something that we should do. 
Um, his wife of 60 some odd years was not quite prepared to hear that. Mm. She said, we'll think about that tomorrow. And so um, the next call I got about him tomorrow, um, now Monday morning, was that his heart had stopped. Um, a panic phone call from his daughter. He's en route to the hospital and she doesn't know what to do. Um, she had told them to go ahead and resuscitate him, which um, under the circumstances um, made sense. Um, and We'll, we're going to pause just a, a moment here while Carla Kearns rejoins us. She was actually taking time out to call from her car, not driving, she stipulated, uh, to talk with us today. So let's give her just a moment, and then if we uh, lose her, we will bring her back on. Okay, we've got you back. Yeah. Um, so uh, his heart stopped. And I realized actually that my advice the night before not to resuscitate him was premised on the idea that he would have a respiratory death. But in fact, he had what was almost certainly either a massive pulmonary embolus or a massive heart attack. And it was only really at that point in the pandemic that medicine was starting to understand the vascular complications of COVID. COVID directly attacks the blood vessels. Um, and so strokes, heart attacks, um, and other kinds of, of cardiovascular events are a huge fraction of what's going on. Um, the family uh, was required to cremate um, because of Ohio's um, public health regulations at the time. Um, that would not have been their choice, um, but that was okay. Um, they had a socially distanced 10-person funeral, and um, his widow was really heartbroken that he didn't have an opportunity to share a celebration of his life with the people he had worked with for more than four decades, the people they had lived with for that long. Sure. We did get to go to the um, cemetery that overlooks the farm in Ohio where he was born, um, one of these tiny country cemeteries. And um, my son insisted on helping to, um, to put the dirt back in to make sure Grandpa stayed warm. It's been some months between now and then. Yeah. And uh, some perspective. Maybe do you do you think of it differently now at all than you thought of it in the springtime? I still think that it was not necessary. Um, I mean, yes, he was 86. Yes, he probably only had a few years left, but... Um, 
but he was um, was still a part of our community. And I don't remember now how many they lost in his retirement community. 10, 15, 20. Um, I got text messages every day. Actually, I still do um, from the retirement community about how many cases they had. Mm. Um, And it's been low for a while. They really controlled the outbreak as well as they could have. And I don't in any way think it was the fault of the staff. Um, You know, as, as a courtesy, because I was a physician, I think, um, I got to talk to the nurse practitioner and the physician in charge of, um, of the community for, for, um, how they handled it. And I think they were just put in an impossible position. Um, the other thing that bothered me and that I wrote an essay about that, um, I haven't gotten published yet was that he received 45 minutes of CPR by three different teams. And I think that he is the kind of death he had, he could potentially have recovered within five minutes, maybe 10, but probably not. But it struck me that 45 minutes of CPR was an incredible recklessness with the lives of the second and third teams of first responders. Um, something that I've talked to with a colleague who works for the American Heart Association. Mm. I work as a bioethicist and I spend a lot of time trying to convince colleagues that CPR has meaning and significance to patients and families beyond its physiologic qualities. And that especially patients from disadvantaged communities, if they want CPR, even if we don't think that it's going to help, when we resist, what they hear is your loved one's not worth it. Right. And of course, that's not what we mean, but we know that that's what they hear. In this case, I know that if Richard could have talked to us, he would have said, give it a try and then stop. Well, thanks for sharing the life of Richard Dorn with us. Sounds like a really extraordinary person and a great grandfather and father-in-law and every other relationship that one has in a life that long and that interesting. And I just want to just remark on one thing. I've talked about my grandparents a lot on COVID calls. The description you gave of the relationship, you know, between your son and him, really important. And and that that's something people also don't take into account. As you said, you know, a few years left, maybe we, we don't know. But in those last few years, older folks often forge really strong relationships with younger people. And I have some of the strongest memories of my grandparents are in the last couple of years of their lives. Right. Right. So my son is seven and the difference between losing your grandfather at six at the time versus 10 is a huge difference in memory. A huge difference. It absolutely is. Well, uh, thank you. Carla, it's been um, 
uh, just a learning experience to be with you twice this week. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to welcome my next uh, guest and obituary reader today, Lyric Prince. Good to see you, Lyric. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Would you mind uh, just introducing yourself to everyone? Sure. I am uh, Lyric Prince. I am a writer and artist, and I also work at NOAA as a social media and science writer there. Uh, I took your class uh, a few years back, uh, seems like ages ago, out of Drexel. And, um, I am honored to be here, and um, thank you for having me on. I'm so happy you could join us. I'm going to uh, get out of the way, and I'll rejoin you in a few minutes, okay? Okay. So I'm about to read an obituary of someone I don't know personally, but um, is representative of the larger effect that COVID has had on my community. I was an African-American. Um, her name is Marquita Hobbs, and she was a school teacher um, in New Jersey. So I'll just get started with it. Marquita Hobbs always put the welfare of others ahead of her own. Between her family at home and the kids at West Celt World Tech, Hobbs made others the priority. Hobbs' husband, Cornell Hobbs, was hospitalized with the coronavirus in April. And while she also started showing symptoms, she continued to care for her two adult children with disabilities, not wanting them to leave them alone, those who knew her said. Hobbs died of the coronavirus at home on April 16th at the age of 64. Her husband continues to recover from the virus and her son also recovered from COVID-19. Her passing left behind a gaping hole in her home and her school and her family at West Caldwell Tech, where Hobbs served as a paraprofessional for 40 years, wanted to honor her properly. She is irreplaceable, said Aisha Robinson, the principal at West Caldwell Tech. The teachers got together, even through this pandemic, and put money together. We were able to raise about $4,500. We paid for her funeral arrangements. And with the other $1,500, we set up a scholarship fund for service. Hobbs, who lived in Irvington, needed to take two buses to the school each day. She was the first one in the building and often the last one to leave. Her work put her in touch with every student and staff member. She was the heart and soul of the building, said Trish Schaefer, who had taught at the school for 10 years. She was kind and had a little involvement in everything, whether it was a dress down day or a spirit day. Anything with a kid, a problem, she was almost like Mrs. Robinson's right-hand man to do the job. And Hobbs's responsibilities evolved over time. If something needed to be done, she was the first in line to volunteer. You asked her to do something, she gave 100% in doing it. And she just took control of everything she did, Robinson said. All of my students are bused to the school, so we needed someone, normally it's a secretary's job, to man the busing. Ms. Hobbs took on that responsibility. And Hobbs took that responsibility seriously. One morning, when a few students got up to the bus, or got off the bus and walked 
about a mile into town. She tracked them down and brought them back to the building. They were frustrated when they got back. She was doing too much, but this was who she was, Robinson said. She took the job seriously. Robinson sprained her ankle and it kept her out of work for two months to start the school year. Hobbs kept her in a loop every day about attendance. Even through the pandemic, Hobbs tracked attendance during virtual learning. She was like a mirror there. She made me feel at home and like I said, she just gave 100% every day, Robinson said. She made it her home. It's hard to find people like that. And that's the end. Um, again, I didn't know her, but I have seen her story and other stories like this at forums that I visit and Reddit, um, where periodically they post up different people who have passed away from coronavirus. Um, doesn't matter whether they're famous or well-known or anything, but um, they profile different African-Americans that passed away from this disease. Um, and I think it's uh, to give these people a name and to make them more than a number. Um, because too often I think people will just think, oh, 4,000 dead, it's a statistic. Instead of these are people with names and with lives that touched other lives and now they can't do that anymore because of you know, the previous failure of leadership we had. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, thanks for reading and sharing that story. And um, she sounds like she was an extraordinary person. Uh, I thought that the detail at the beginning that her husband had been sick. And so like so many people, she was in the role of giving care and then also got sick herself. Yeah, and her son as well. Um, I, I just, I think that with the way that African-Americans have been affected by this, it's just, it's gonna leave a mark. Um, for, I wouldn't even say generations, but it would be something that we have to be very careful about um, going forward to protect our own health as well as protecting the health of the people in our community. So um, African-Americans are twice as likely to die from this disease than any other ethnicity or well compared to white people. And um, we have to think about the reasons why, you know, you know, are we working the right kind of jobs? Are we working mm -hmm. um, with people that are also exposed and are able to protect themselves? Um, how about our health before we get sick? Um, how is that being maintained? So all of these um, conditions come together to create this situation where it's a literal assault on our survival, our ability to survive um, when disaster strikes. Um, and I just, I wonder a lot about, not just with the pandemic, but also other sorts of disasters. How are we as a community um, ready to, to face those challenges um, when the time comes? And, you know, I just, I don't have the experience or the, the scholastic um, background to say, you know, this is what we should absolutely do, um, or these are the things that don't work, but um, it's just, I think these questions should be discussed more more thoroughly and with, with greater honesty than what they've been previously discussed. So one of the things that um, I guess it's become a standard way to describe this pandemic is that it has revealed inequality. I, I think that's not enough to say that because uh, the positionality of that statement, it's revealed inequality, it's revealing it to people who weren't aware of it before. I, 
I've used that phrase before and I've, I've kind of stopped because I felt like it's not, it's not adequate. Um, because, uh, Marquita Hobbs certainly, and African Americans who've died so disproportionately this year don't have to have that revealed to them. Um, it's not even just about inequality, it's vulnerability. You know, like the whole, um, one of the things that I've been doing with my work, um, I'm not gonna go into it because I'm not representing them right now here with you, but um, is Social Vulnerability Index, where you're, we're thinking about all the different factors that come into play when we're assessing, you know, a particular group that might be exposed to a particular sort of disaster. and. Um, you know, just things that come together where we are affected, not just because of the pandemic, but other situations that come along as well. And we don't have as much of a protection um, from those, the, the outcome of those, um, the situations. I, I want to say that with the way our communities are, have been positioned in the past, we are just, we are we are not able to defend ourselves as well as maybe other groups um, with more social capital, with more financial capital. Um, we tend to be in the worst place locations, uh, having the disproportionately low-paying jobs. Um, you know, other health comorbidities um, that are just like affecting how we're able to weather through this and other things. So. Um, I just think that overall, I hope that with everything that's happening today and since we um, we are thinking a bit more carefully how we can prepare for disasters, um, whether they're with disease or with other sorts, like with natural disasters. And I think we can do better and we should do better. And we have the resources to do better. Now, since you're here, I'd like to ask you because you have uh, a really crucial set of skills. I mean, you're a person who's an artist and a writer you're also a science communicator for the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. As you said, you're not here representing them, and that's, and that's fine. But, but you're a person I know who thinks, therefore, a lot about the challenges of communicating both scientific information, large numbers, big concepts, um, but also, as you were just describing, you've been thinking a lot about the challenges of telling individual stories. Yeah. That relationship and those difficulties gets pointed out a lot but i kind of like to hear a little bit more from you about how you how you think about that i hold a very special place for art as a as a way for people to try to make sense of things that are hard to make sense of like this pandemic and the scale of it i wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your thoughts about that um the intersection between art and science uh, is still, honestly, it's not very well explored in America, right? Um, because, well, it just seems like there's two completely different sort of, like there's left brain, right brain sort of like contrast um, in terms of how we want to think about those two things. But um, when you really get at it with science, um, you know, it is basically making the impossible possible. It's make it's discovering new ideas and, and creating new solutions. Um, creation of those solutions, I think that's like a really big part of what makes science so special. And it's the same thing with art. You create solutions, you create a new perspective. I uh, would say that as a science writer, I am 
I'm more, I'm more skilled with putting things in um, easier to digest ways uh, as opposed to explaining them in a complex or more complete way because um, a lot of what I do with social media is you have to, I have to chop things up to be easily digestible and quickly read um, and spread. And uh, in terms of, well, with, with disasters like the wildfires or, you know, anything, any other given sort of natural disaster, people need to know certain things quickly. Um, they don't need to know like the specifics of what satellite I'm using or how the different technological processes work together. They just need to know, oh, do I need to leave this place or not? Right. Um, right. Basically, <laughs> right. I don't mean to make light of this, but no, um, I understand. But it's just with with thinking about how to reach people um, that are in vulnerable communities that could um, potentially get some added benefit from having more information. Like Marquita, she didn't have to die. She she could have had access to different resources, um, had more information about where to go, what kind of doctors, or what kind of care she needed. And we, we also see that, um, you know, even though she didn't have a high paying job, she was, it doesn't really matter um, ultimately what kind of position um, a person, like a black woman or an African-American woman or an African-American tends to hold in the society, they still get disproportionately treated worse by the medical establishment. Um, and I was looking at the case, like with a, recently a doctor died, passed away, Susan Moore, um, and she, just before she passed away, she, she made a video, a video, a vlog about her treatment at the hospital, that despite her being a doctor, she was ignored frequently by several levels of the administration there. Um, and she finally had to go to a different place and got treatment there, but she died before, you know, they could really do anything. Um, and though, so it's just like, she had to make a dying declaration. Um, and post that online for people to understand exactly what was going on in terms of how, even with the best sort of education or best preparation you can make as a doctor, she still was um, exposed to these sort of inequalities. And, um, you know, I think also with the coronavirus um, vaccine there, you know, of course there are issues with the deployment of it and the, you know, people being able to get it in the first place, but. Also, there's this level of distrust um, within the black community because of so many other things that have happened in the past where, mm -hmm. you know, you think about the Gila sales, um, you think about Tuskegee, you think about other situations where, you know, the, uh, there is an abuse of trust by the medical establishment that is preventing people from getting the help or even seeking information about the help they need in order to survive this virus. Um, a lot of misinformation is happening out there right now, and I know plenty of people who are doing everything they can on social media and elsewhere to combat that, giving out correct information about the vaccine, um, how to get it, um, dispelling rumors about, oh, yeah, this is what happened for with Tuskegee. No, Tuskegee, for instance, was, you know, they didn't treat a disease. They didn't inject syphilis. They, they just didn't treat it. So, like, you know, like recontextualizing history and retelling history in a way that people can understand. I think that's a big part of what um, science communicators, um, disinformation, spe well, disinformation specialists and other people are working really hard to try and uh, share that information with vulnerable communities like African-Americans. And it can be done. And, and um, definitely, I think I'm hopeful about our prognosis going forward on how to deal with this, with the new administration.
I'm I'm glad you have that hope, and that was what I was just going to offer. You know, in Biden's speech today, he talked a lot about unity. Mm-hmm. I do hope people don't expect too much too fast, as you just said. Uh, you know, when the history of this pandemic is written, it will be impossible to look past not just the pandemic revealing inequality, but rank racism in the way that the response worked. And unity is not just going to happen because some officials get up and say, okay, this is over and everybody's going to get their vaccine now. No. That's not how disaster memory works. No. But I don't know where maybe Kamala Harris and others can will certainly roll up their sleeves and do the work of communicating and trying to build bridges. But that word unity is being used a lot. And I like the word, but you know, you know, there's got to be something more. I I agree. Um, And I think ultimately it's not the part, the problem of the government to have not enough resources because it's more of like, you know, do we have the will to make the, a difference um, and to reach people and populations and, and to deploy um, effective measures to combat this disease and um, any other sort of disaster that comes up going forward. Um, I just want to say, while it, it's, it, it is an unexpected benefit to see how countries in Africa, um, not to say South Africa, they have one of the worst rates right now, but other countries in Africa, they're doing an amazing job. Um, with combating it, with their transmission rates are lower than practically anywhere else in the world. Um, Because of, first of all, they have an extensive um, pandemic experience um, combating combating Ebola, combating other sort of um, diseases that have come and infected the populations there. So they have the medical and um, the the medical and also the logistical knowledge to, to spread um, remedies more effectively and um, in a, an efficient way. And I think that we can learn a lot from, um, you know, different ways of doing this, uh, different, like because right now what we're doing is clearly not working and maybe that is by design by the previous administration. I'm not gonna say for sure that it is, but maybe it's also, we just simply didn't know and we didn't really feel like we could look for other places for advice or how to, to manage this more effectively. It's hard to say, really. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us the life story of Marquita Hobbs. And I've also really enjoyed this conversation that that followed. And it's great to see you again. Um, I'm sorry it's in this context, but I learned a lot from you even in this this short conversation. And uh, thanks for making time today, Lyric. Thank you. Tara. Hello. Would you, good to see you again. And would you mind just briefly introducing yourself and then I'll uh, absent myself while you share a life story. Certainly. Um, My name is Tara Haley and I'm a freelance health and science journalist. Um, I am going to read to you an obituary of a teacher in Northeast Oklahoma. This was reported on in the Joplin Globe. Um, Northeast Oklahoma teacher dies after battle with COVID-19. Should I go ahead? Let's see here. Three three days after Christmas, 
we might have just had a little bit of a frozen screen there just as Tara was getting started. She she, here she is. Okay, we, we lost you just at the beginning there, Tara. And oh, okay. um, so I'm gonna um I'm gonna drop out again and maybe you could start from the beginning because we only heard the first couple yeah, words. Okay. No okay. So from Miami, Oklahoma. Northeast Oklahoma teacher dies after battle with COVID-19. Three days after Christmas, Jennifer Cunningham found herself at Integris Grove Hospital struggling to breathe. Following a doctor's appointment, Jennifer's husband, Wes Cunningham, dropped her off at the emergency room for testing to determine how double pneumonia, one of the effects of the new coronavirus, was progressing. A mid-afternoon scan indicated Jennifer had blood clots in both lungs. Doctors told Wes they were looking to find a hospital to transfer her to for further treatment, but he said he was said that he was told no hospital beds were available in Oklahoma, Arkansas, or Missouri. By 6:24 p.m., Jennifer was dead. Doctors told West that some clots dislodged when she went to the restroom. Now, just days after her death, West and other family members and friends, including daughters Victoria, 17, and Annalise, 11, are speaking out about Jennifer's battle with the virus which by December 31st had claimed at least 72 other lives in Ottawa and Delaware counties in Northeast Oklahoma. I think it's important for people to see COVID-19 affecting people close to them and in their communities, West said. They need to see how painful and devastating of a disease this is. I think so many people take COVID-19 for granted and do not take the simple precautions of wearing a mask until it affects them directly. It is a proven killer. You just have to look at the numbers. Jennifer, a former teacher in Miami and Fairland in Oklahoma, was diagnosed with COVID-19 on December 15th after self-quarantining from an exposure on December 4th. She told family and friends she wanted to use social media to highlight her journey with the virus. She knew firsthand from watching her sister-in-law's experience working in a Joplin hospital that area healthcare facilities were burdened with COVID-19 cases. She was worried people were not being safe enough, said Joelle Schaefer, the sister-in-law. She posted things because she wanted people to know what COVID-19 was like. Four days later, Jennifer's social media posts turned more serious as she asked friends for, quote, positive vibes, thoughts, love, and prayers. I'm going on seven days of this COVID-19 nonsense. The fever keeps climbing and I'm tired. By December 22nd, Jennifer's fever climbed to 104 degrees while her oxygen levels decreased. Tests at the emergency room in Grove indicated she had pneumonia and low oxygen levels, she was discharged after a seven-hour stay accompanied by the prescribed oxygen tank. A Christmas Eve update let friends know the prescribed oxygen was helping her, although she said that her blood pressure was still low and the fever was only staying down thanks to medicine. Wes said things improved somewhat on December 26th when Jennifer slept in a bed. It was the first time in eight days she was able to leave her recliner for more than a bathroom break or a trip to the porch. I really thought she was going to get better after we came home with the oxygen, Wes said. I really thought that would help us turn the corner. But her death would come two days later as she sat at the Integris Grove emergency room awaiting transport to another hospital. COVID-19, relentless and hard to defeat, had claimed another victim, a 42-year-old wife and mother of two, teacher and community volunteer. Before her marriage to Wes in 2003, Jennifer explored a career in the hospitality industry, dreaming of working in a hotel in Hawaii. After the births of her daughters, Jennifer began working for the Department of Human Services in Ottawa and Delaware counties in child welfare. Her brother, Mark Schaefer, said the job left Jennifer empty and searching for other ways to help students she encountered. She wanted to make a difference, he said. 
That passion, family members say, led Jennifer to pursue an alternative teaching license and eventually earn a master's degree in education administration from Western Governors University. She began teaching middle school science in Fairland in 2013 before transferring to teach the same subject at Will Rogers Middle School in Miami. In 2019, she made another move to teach English and yearbook classes at Blue Jacket High School in Craig County. Amber Harrison, a Grove teacher and friend, would go on walks with Jennifer. The pair would discuss ways to get their students engaged and excited about learning, even if it meant finding new and innovative and hands-on methods. The pair would later collaborate, taking their students on field trips to the Rural Oklahoma Museum of Poetry in Locust Grove. Jennifer made it mandatory for her students to enter the museum's poetry contests, even as she herself entered. Jennifer's first entry, I remember, was published in Word Daubers, the collection of works from the museum's 2019 Summer Poetry Challenge. She wanted her students to be globally aware and care about others, Harrison said. She wanted them to make a positive impact on others in the world. So thanks, thanks for sharing that that one. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about it? Yeah. Um I wasn't sure if I was gonna get through it all. Um I turned 43 today. So I was the exact same age as this teacher. And I taught high school in Texas. And I'm a science reporter. She was a science teacher. Um, she was an English and yearbook teacher. I taught English and yearbook and journalism and newspaper. And uh, I, my students were, I was always pushing them to do things like forcing them to to enter contests and, and do things that um you know to raise awareness I, I you know I, I would we did an angel tree for our class uh for other kids in the school because i taught at a low income school but i just also at that school where i taught one of the teachers who was there who was a, who used to be he taught across the hall from me um he ended up dying of cancer while we were teaching and I remember watching him as he got the diagnosis, when he was fighting it. I went and visited him at the hospital. I remember so well when he asked me to pray for him because he was a very devout Christian and I am sort of an agnostic atheist and I did not hesitate. I've never prayed in my life out loud and I, <laughs> I prayed out loud with him and I would do it again in the heartbeat a million times over even though I had no idea what I was doing. And then he passed away a week or two after that. and so this story just really hits home for me. I mean, I, I could be this woman or I, or this woman could be my coworker. I, I've been on, you know, I, I relate to this both as her friends who were left behind and as the fact that she was a high school teacher like me, the same age as me. Um, I happen to be high risk for this. I've, I've been staying home, but teachers in texas and in many other states they don't have the option of staying home they're required to go into school to teach uh they're not getting the waivers that um e even if they have conditions that make them high risk they're not receiving waivers and their choice is basically to lose their job and also possibly lose their license because they're breaking a contract which enables them or prevents them from being able to continue having it um until the contract runs out or to risk their lives. Um, and finally, my sister is one of these teachers. Uh, she's a high school teacher in Dallas. So they're just, this this hits me so hard in so many ways mm. because I, I the teachers are not okay. And 
they're getting left behind. Many teachers are not being prioritized with vaccines, even as they're being told by their states that they are required to teach and they it's either teach or quit and there's no other option um so i just i know i'm kind of rambling but it's uh it just really hits hard <laughs> you're not rambling at all you're you're listing off the many points of connection that make these life stories of people in many cases whom we haven't met uh somehow deeply meaningful to us i think that um Tara has dropped off for just a second and she'll she'll come back on. I was um, really moved by by that obituary. There's something in there that particularly um, something about um, just to go back to it where she talked about uh, using social media and she wanted to use social media to highlight her journey with the virus and that she knew firsthand from watching her sister-in-law's experience working at a Joplin hospital that area healthcare facilities were burdened with COVID-19. So to use social media in that way, try to document her journey, also is something I've heard in other stories um, from health professionals and other teachers who even in their moment of illness have been striving to use that as a way to educate. And I mean, to say that that's deeply impressive to me and is an understatement and the kind of courage that it would take to do that is also something i wonder if i would have um tara i was just uh, i don't know if you were able to hear that i'm glad we've got you back i was just pointing out um the many different points of connection that you were laying out there just really uh, just seemed to me absolutely crucial that we all go through that that we need to do that um we that even, so it's one level of just hearing the numbers. Of course, there's a numbness that happens with the numbers, but even also seeing the names, seeing lots of names that can move people, but actually taking the time to read one of these stories and really putting yourself in there and, and to feel that empathy, but also that fear of making that human connection. I think it's just a really important part to keeping our humanity at at this time and i was just pointing out something from that you read which is that even that she saw it as a an education moment she wanted to use social media as a tool to educate at the time what a lot of guts to do that yeah that was one of the things that grabbed me as well because that's the kind of thing that i and many teachers i worked with know it's everything is an opportunity to teach in, in whatever form and i um I, I, I'll be sharing this broadcast on my Facebook page after after I hang up. And I apologize for my technical issues here. Our internet's going in and out, so I, I just decided to go with my don't, cell phone. Don't apologize. Um, I'm just glad you came back. <laughs> um, but uh, I have a lot of my former students. I, I haven't taught since. Uh, well, let's see. I mean, I have I have the college students I taught, but the high school students I taught, the last high school students that I taught, uh, graduated in 2008. So they are, you know, most of them are 30 or so by now. Um, and I have many of them on my Facebook feed and I'm still sort of doling out advice to them. I'm still, uh, they're still my kids, right? They're, they're not kids anymore. They've got their own families, but they're still my kids. They still, today I, several of them wished me a happy birthday and they said, happy birthday, Mrs. Haley. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're 32 or something. <laughs> yeah, right. that never um, and I just, uh, that's yeah. how we, um, I'm so angry at how we're treating our teachers. I mean, I, I, 
we exploit the fact that these are the best humans that are out there. They're in this job because they care about their kids. They care about students. They care about teaching. They care about learning. They love doing it. It's why they do it because you don't do it for the money. And I, we're just, we're killing them. <laughs> we're not even giving them a choice. It makes me angry. My sister, um, I come from a long line of teachers and, uh, uh, and most of them, I went into higher ed, which from a teaching perspective is, is great, but it's, it's not as full contact as the K through 12 environment, frankly. Right. Uh, and my mother was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. My brother-in-law is a teacher. My sister is a teacher. Um, it's in my family. And so you do hear, you do know when you grow up in a house with teachers, I know what it was like to have my mom um, spend her, spend our money on, her money on materials. And staying oh gosh, she has nice, so much money. <laughs> you know, doing, and getting invested in the lives of kids that went well beyond what happened in the, in the classroom. And my sister, um, I'll share this, and she's a teacher in Texas, um, you know, she was able to get access to the vaccine and of course, I, I had a, like my entire family had a jubilant response to that. But my other response is like you is anger. How was she not the first? Yeah. How were teacher? how did the governor of Texas get the vaccine before the teachers? Yeah. I mean, to me, they should have been in with the, the healthcare workers. They should have been 1A top of the line right off the bat. Um, it's funny, as we were just now talking, I just, as we were discussing here on my phone, I got a text message from one of my former students wishing me a happy birthday. And he actually has COVID right now. Um, the student who just wished me that, he's doing fine. He, he has had a very, you know, he's young, has a very mild case. But um, yeah, I just, I have been reading, you know, I'm hearing from my friends. And I, back in the summertime, I was trying to organize a little bit. I don't, for people who aren't familiar with uh, Texas politics, um, Texas teachers, we have unions, but the unions don't have much teeth and it's actually illegal to, to uh, strike. It's against the law to strike as a teacher in Texas. And the punishment is quite substantial. The consequences for striking are that you lose your license, which you can lose for life, and you can lose your entire pension, which is a separate system than Social Security. You can't actually go into Social Security. So you can actually put your entire retirement at risk. So it's just, you know, I, I know some teachers who chose to quit um, and, it, and many of them don't have that option, right? I mean, teaching is a secure job. So often it's the job that people go into because they need that security in addition to loving what they do. Um, and I, you know, I don't think people realize just how dangerous, like you, teachers did not sign up to go into combat. You know, and this they should be getting combat pay. No, um, at, at the very least, they, they're you know though they should not if they're volunteering to be able to go in because they're young and healthy. But the ones who are requesting waivers and having them denied, that's criminal in my opinion. Well, I mean, they're also it's such a gendered. Uh, I mean, you know, the bias, the long-standing workplace bias against women is yes. has to be understood in terms of who's in the classroom in the K two. Yeah. K through 12 classroom. There've been some gains in that, but not nearly enough. How many male teachers did most of us have? Not many. Up? Not it, many. Like That's said, not by accident. Yeah. Brilliant women um, became teachers, still become teachers. 
Yeah. Uh, but those opportunities were not there. And so yeah, that's another example where we find, you know, people forced into essential work who also didn't have a full range of choices of how they ended up in that profession. Yeah. I mean, there's just no, there's nothing good about any of it. I admire the teachers who are going in there, but I'm in a lot of, I'm in several groups, including a group that I formed with the intention of trying to help organize. It was just too gargantuan an effort and I wasn't able to do it. I feel like I failed my, my I mean, I'm not a teacher currently. Like I said, I haven't been in a K-12 classroom since um, 2008, but you never really stopped being a teacher. I loved it. And I, <laughs> I would, I've talked very frequently. People on Facebook will hear me say once every couple of weeks, gosh, I miss teaching. I mean, I, I, I love what I do now as a journalist, and a lot of my work is very teaching-oriented, even as a journalist, but I still loved teaching, and I miss it all the time. I just, for various reasons with my family and other reasons, it wasn't right. This past year is the first time I have ever said, I don't miss teaching. Yeah, I mean, sure. You know, I am so grateful, and I, I have a little bit of guilt about that because I have so many good friends that are still teaching, that teach in, you, know, you and I went to the same high school. <laughs> Uh, the school that I taught in is actually in that same district. Um, so, um, uh, you know, teachers that I both went to the high school that you and I went to, teachers that went, you know, that, that taught there years later when I was at the other school. And I just, yeah, it's, I know, I feel like I'm rambling, but I can't. No, yeah. you're not, you're not <laughs> rambling at all. You're sharing, you're sharing and sharing real truths. And, and we did both go to Arlington Martin High School and we can say that. And, uh, uh, I taught at Sam Houston High School, which was on my the mother. Other my mother taught at Sam Houston High School too. Wonderful! I did not know that. Wow, yeah, she that's, did. That's connection there. Um, Tara, thank you so much, and thank you for uh, bringing us the story of Jennifer Cunningham, great teacher in Oklahoma. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I hope. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Okay, we are gonna bring up our next presenter now, and it is really great to see Quinn Lucy. And uh, Quinn, you wanna introduce yourself? Hi, Scott, and, and thank you for having me. And, and before I say anything else, these are just wonderful stories. Some of them, you know, compelling and, and in some cases heartbreaking, um, but all need to be told as examples of what's going on around the country. And I'm going to provide one from our family here in a second. So, you know, thank you. Thank you all of them and their perspectives. So. Um, very briefly, uh, you know, I'm here on my own, obviously, as we talked before, but I am actually an attorney with the Federal Emergency Management Agency and, um, and through uh, some work in this last year, been very much involved uh, at the national level working on issues directly related to the COVID-19 response, uh, specifically with the PPE distribution and several of the task forces. Um, and so, um, you know, this has been um, something that has been I, I'm without words as, as to what I've, all I've seen this last year. And of course, you know, we're not even through it, um, obviously. So it's, it's, it's just been terrible. Um, and, but also, um, you know, uh, 
I, I hope that we learn from this experience and we've talked about that before. So that's that's where I come from. That's my background here. And, and I'd like to talk uh, briefly, give a, essentially an oral obituary of my grandfather, James Patrick Foreman, but also known as Quinn, where I get my name. Um, and the circumstances that leads to me giving an oral obituary, I think kind of explain where the country was back uh, when he passed this spring. Um, uh, because we simply kind of just shows the, the state the country's in at the time. So my grandfather, Quinn, um, his life was bookended by pandemics. He was born on November 17, 1919, uh, to a single mother in, in Oakland, California, our great-grandmother. Um, and he passed away this May uh, in a in a assisted living home uh, in Connecticut. And as you can imagine from the timing and circumstances, he'd lived nearly, he'd lived his entire life uh, independently or, or with just the minimal help and had just uh, had to be put into our place in assisted living home full time um, as his body had begun to, to kind of deteriorate finally, but his mind still being there. And of course, everything moved so quickly. The fact that we did not have the time to do a written obituary, I think, again, kind of explains really where this country was uh, in the springtime period. So uh, our grandfather, Quinn, um, known from that the earliest age, there's a now lost family connection to Quentin Roosevelt. Uh, son of Teddy Roosevelt, who was a U.S. Air Force pilot killed, or I should say U.S. Army uh, pilot killed during the First World War. Uh, began his life out in California uh, and moved around to several places, but led a, a life that literally is an example of, of the greatest generation and, and what they did. So as a seven-year-old boy in San Diego, he was walking by a stadium and saw a, heard a crowd and looked over, and there was uh, Charles Lindbergh back from Paris, uh, many don't realize that his flight essentially began in San Diego um, and was back uh, completing his tour of the country after a successful flight. Uh, he saw that as a seven-year-old boy. Uh, later, he moved to Los Angeles where people like Margaret Hamilton, uh, you might remember, was Oz, would look after him as a young boy um, and would graduate, believe it or not, from the, the Hollywood High class of 1938, uh, where if you look in his yearbook page, you will see Alan Hale, the skipper on the Gilligan's Island, and another classmate included Mickey Rooney. Uh, and a funny story he once told me about him that we can talk about some other day, maybe, uh, his memories of that. But his junior year, um, he spent the year with his with relatives in Colorado as my grandma, great-grandmother needed some time. And he ended up moving to a town of Briggsdale, Colorado. So if you can imagine Hollywood High and moving to Briggsdale, Colorado, which to this day is so small, the roads are still not paved outside of Greeley, Colorado. Um, but it was there at this very small high school that he met the love of his life, our grandmother, uh, Dorothy Sweet, Dee Dee Sweet, the, the granddaughter of a Union infantry officer and of German craft makers uh, out in, in Boston, who's, whose father had followed the railroads west at the end of, of the Wild Wild West years. And there they met in this absolutely tiny, tiny high school of Briggsdale, uh, returned to California his, his senior year, but then returned again to Colorado, uh, where eventually uh, he continued to date our grandmother, and uh, in 1942, um, with the war, uh, they were married. Uh, previous to that, our grandfather had enlisted in the Army, um, and thanks to his photography hobby, found himself a second lieutenant in the Army and a photo reconnaissance officer. So in 1944, as our grandmother was pregnant with their first child, Carrie, uh, he left uh, for over a year of his life uh, to Burma, uh, where he was stationed for over a year returning to see our, our aunt, uh, who is now a baby girl. Uh, he was prepared to go again um, for the invasion of Japan when the war ended. Uh, the, 
he returned to Colorado and soon enough in 1947 gave birth, or our grandmother gave birth to my mother, uh, Jan Lucy, out in the small town of Delta, Colorado. They returned to, to Greeley. And as our grandfather uh, lived in a small house, small enough that it literally would fit probably in the basement I'm in right now, uh, he was building a basement to their small home, um, essentially on his own. He had cut a deal to to use an earth mover um, every evening after work. Um, but in return, he would have to take that dirt and return it to the build site. But in the midst of that, uh, Captain Foreman uh, was recalled for the Korean War and left again for another year as my grandmother had to finish the basement with help from, from neighbors. Um, and after 14 years in the Air Force, Army, now Air Force Reserve, our grandfather just realized that our, his family had contributed enough and it was time to move on from, from that. So raising a family in Greeley, Colorado, uh, he eventually returned to California with our grandmother to San Diego and specifically Chula Vista where he became the manager of a small office supply store. And our grandmother was the church secretary for the first congregational church there in Chula Vista and where our family got to, to every year visit um, as we drove across the country and then had the most wonderful time with the most wonderful grandparents you could imagine. Uh, we, our unbirthday parties and providing me the fandom of the San Diego Padres that I will forever inherit and you might see in the background behind me. Um, but after 30 years, uh, they returned and, and back to the, this time to the Midwest and, and moved to Macomb, Illinois, our hometown, uh, down the street from my parents, and where again, they were very active, now retired in the community, uh, specifically the First Presbyterian Church in Macomb, and Macomb Beautiful, where they took an outsized, uh, uh, took their outsized energy to, to work on their adopted home for, for several decades, making it a, a wonderful and better place uh, with, with the work only our, our grand, that Dorothy, our grandmother Dee Dee and, and grandfather Quinn could do if you could have known them. Um, the marriage they had was, I would say, wonderful and, and gave rise to, to two daughters. Uh, they did lose their daughter, Carrie, who is well known in the Denver area with her husband, Sam, who ran the Fort restaurant. Um, but she passed away uh, in, 19, uh, in 2017 on the 75th anniversary of their marriage. 75 years they got to spend together uh, in this wonderful time and to, and to witness these things. Um, and again, uh, eventually, uh, my grandfather would move to Connecticut uh, just in a, a year ago with my parents. And during that time period uh, was just, if, if you could imagine the, the elderly grandfather who retained more than you could imagine in the life, more than you can imagine, and could still tell those stories and still provide that wisdom, um, I wish you all could have met him like that. Um, in fact, uh, on his 100th birthday, celebration in November of, of, of 2019. Uh, as I explained my work to my grandfather, much of it dealing with the, the mobilization authorities and, and, and background uh, of the country in the post-war period, I literally had to pull out my laptop and for nearly an hour explained in detail what I was doing while he peppered me uh, with questions. And so, you know, we've heard lives today that were cut short. Uh, we've heard lives today that should suffered that they shouldn't have. You know, our grandfather, Quinn, um, you know, whether his, his his body was shutting down naturally or whether it was COVID um, that that eventually took him, we won't really know, no way to really pull those together. But he did get COVID uh, in, a, in that assisted living home that he had just moved to 
Um, and unfortunately, it made it very difficult, as you would imagine, on our family, uh, not being able to be directly with him during that time period. Um, but he passed here in May and led, you know, ultimately, I would consider, uh, I think anyone would consider a wonderful and blessed life. And we were so very, very lucky to have him for absolutely as, as long as we did. Um, and I like to think he still stays with us uh, even to this day with 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 photo albums that any family would be blessed that he put together. So that was the story of our, our grandfather, uh, Quinn Foreman. Uh, again, a life literally bookended by two pandemics, born into one in, in a hospital in Oakland, California in November 1919 and ending uh, in the next great pandemic um, in uh, May of 2020. And that was our grandfather, Quinn Foreman. What a tremendous tribute. I really enjoyed hearing that. I mean, what an inspiring uh, life. And the way you describe those details is really uh, is wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Quinn. Thank you. And my parents actually may be watching this today, and I'm sure my mother would have far more to add, obviously. But uh, we were we were truly blessed. And I, I was just telling someone, I think yesterday, that to to the breadth of what that generation saw is when the we had the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Um, my grandmother uh, was older then than I am now, um, which still blows my mind that you know you have people of his generation and my grandmother who was born a year and a half later that literally grew up with horses. And then within 50 years, we're watching us land on the moon, uh, which also leads to a, a wish, you know, we should be better than where we are now, um, but it is it, it is the the world that we have right now. I think about that a lot. My great grandmother lived to be a hundred, and I knew her when I was quite young, and uh, she really relished uh, beating. She was nearly blind, but she cooked amazing food, and then she and she read her mm -hmm. her magazines with the magnifying glass, and then she would whip my tail at dominoes no mercy at all uh, but she was and i i didn't understand it then it took me a little while to figure out that she was born in 1890 mm -hmm. and the world that she had the changes you know to grow up in a farm as she did in oklahoma um to grow up you know the experience you described with your grandfather to go from california to colorado see these changes and see all the technology technological changes in the wars and everything else she'd seen so much but to me she was you know my great grandma who beat me at dominoes uh, yeah. you know <laughs> i didn't know the right questions to ask is what i'm saying i i, I still think every day and, and, and it's unbelievable uh, the amount of history that uh, he left for us I, photo albums that are that are literally priceless my wife is still uh speechless honestly when she sees what he put together for us um, but I also think it's too, it's interesting specifically uh, with with Lyric and her experience. And, and when people talk about, you know, these these things that were were so many years ago, especially with communities of color, you know, my family's generation is is not that far removed from days that were hurt. You know, people of those communities had none of these opportunities. And so I'm at least lucky enough to to have had those advantages. But, you know, as she so eloquently said, those, you know, I don't even know where the right word, um, but those traumas that were inflicted very much still impact everything we do today. And we're seeing in the pandemic, 
Um, and so, you know, I, I think even when I talk about those stories, I always think about, you know, how does that, how does that, how does that Amer distinctly American story that my grandmother, my grandfather and grandmother have, which is of the greatest generation, but how does that story, you know, reflect upon the entire community in the United States? And it's not the same story that everyone would tell. And so, sure. um, yeah, I, I, it's when I think of that history in that way, especially in terms of the pandemic, I, I think of where we all stand today and how all this we started this pandemic all in very different places it would have been fascinating to talk to your grandfather about that i mean he his service in the korean war would have been the first time that the military in any meaningful way was moving towards desegregation mm -hmm. i mean he lived that life as well he lived mm -hmm. through that through that period obviously with a different experience and different from what mm -hmm. lyric was describing but reflecting on that over that long span, it, mm -hmm. it's important, but it's another thing we are losing. At, you know, and, and it's interesting. You know, I live in Charlottesville now, and I grew up in West Central Illinois. Um, really, essentially shielded from a lot of the issues we're seeing now. Um, single high school, small state college town, but you know, here in Charlottesville, you say the name, and everyone knows, and and it's been very eye-opening to see just how deep history really goes in this country and i never truly appreciated even though i've always enjoyed history i had a minor in it but i never truly appreciated it till i came here um how you know you know how deep it goes and not always to the places that that we want but want you can't but we but we we need to be cognizant that is our country and i think the the uh, you know we the inaugural poem we heard today I think does a, did a fantastic job. Um, can't remember her name, uh, but uh, Amanda Graham I believe. But you know she did a fantastic job I think of talking about all that good, all that bad, and and, and that. So I just want to ask ask you a couple other things uh, about your grandfather. I, I loved the story of the basement. So that sounds like, I mean, that's like a classic piece of family lore. Do mm -hmm. you think that's embellished or is that the real, is that no, the real story? No, in fact, when we would go every year, we would drive from Illinois to California and back. So um, I, I know, it, and actually it's an amazing experience to have literally seen almost the entire country as a kid growing up in, a, in the back of our van, you know, and with uh, nothing more than maybe a Walkman, you know, otherwise you were looking out the window for, for, for days and days and visiting amazing places. Um, but our mother, we would drive by that home, which is still there in Greeley, Colorado. And uh, you know, our mother would kind of half-jokingly tell us, hey, if you're bad kids, we're going to move back into that tiny little house that literally, <laughs> I'm not making it up, but literally in this, <laughs> sure. in this basement here. Um, but it also explains, too, I think, you know, we talk about how, you know, everything worked at the end of the war. I mean, people forget it was, it was a very difficult period. There were all these men coming home at the same time. There were women who'd had jobs and now had to leave them. There was an economy changing over and contracting some places, expanding others. And, you know, and it was not very easy. So, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it was, it was a tough story. And I, I hope that we were lucky enough to kind of uh, inherit uh, some of the hard work and, and experiences that our, my grandparents had. Well, also then the other thing that was really striking to me among many um, was how you described him towards the end of his life uh where he peppered you with so many questions oh, yeah. that he he really wanted to and this reminds me of my grandfather who insisted when i would come to visit him towards the end of his life at the assisted living anybody who was close by he had to introduce me as the doctor my grandson the doctor is here 
And <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's uh, great. Uh, I'm glad you're showing that. And and uh, I, I, of course, of course, I'd have to explain if they would let me that I wasn't I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD. Um, but but then he would launch into the questions because he was really curious and he wanted to know what I was doing. Um, you know, and, and I think it really is important to, to reflect on that, that older folks, um, you know, they're vital. And, and they, they are, and he, they give you a wonderful perspective. In fact, uh, in the article I wrote a couple of years ago on mobilization, you know, one of the key quotes I got, um, from general Marshall about being prepared for a war and mobilization and how hard it is if you're going to get into it with an authoritarian country came from a book that I got from my grandfather and a biography of Marshall that I wouldn't have read, but he was reading these into his nineties. And, and um, you know, even as I spoke with him, even though he did not, he was not a direct part of, of what I've been looking at over the last few years, but it, it provided that perspective. It was very interesting to see at a time where the country still thought much larger uh, than we have really in years truly in a time period where they thought nationally, not to say that any of the things they built would have worked uh, that were beaten as they prepared for a potential war with the Soviet Union. Um, but they truly did for many, many years think about how is the entire country uh, going to reorient and deal with this existential threat should it occur. Um, and again, you know, how do you re replicate them growing up in the depression where the country was forced to deal with emergencies. In fact, you know, I think I've talked about it. The very first office for emergency management created in 1940 was to mobilize the nation. Um, and so my grandfather, what came from that generation where they they thought they still had these this national level thinking that unfortunately didn't transition over from the the cold the end of the Cold War to to where we are now. And 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 I, I say this as having these most wonderful conversations with my grandfather about this very issue. Still at the age of 99, 100. Yeah, I think that's, I had that a conversation, I've talked with you about that, uh, and I've also talked with historian Peter Shulman about this, about the reality of what happens when you, when you do lose generational experience mm -hmm. for what we would think of as a national level disaster. And, and like you, I, you know, the, I'm a critic of a lot of that Cold War planning, but you cannot, mm -hmm. um, lay aside the fact that the infrastructure was there um, in terms of planning mm -hmm. um, and some offices created and modes of thinking about national scale disaster that I think we've disinvested mm -hmm. in. And obviously we've seen this year the, the results of that, Trump notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think that's going to be part of our deeper analysis of this past year. I know it's something you've already been thinking about every single day. Uh, yes, and, and, and we've talked about this a little bit. And, and, and again, it's, it's not something that that is something that you can direct to either party or any administration. It is just the way things moved over the last 30 years, especially in, in the area where I work in now of that transition from a national security perspective, which and it probably had to happen to the more natural hazards into the, you know, obviously climate change and other things driving these things now, but that transition period, um, you know, we lost some things that I think with a little more imagination, might have we might have been able to keep around and really would have helped um you know where we are now and again that's that's 
that's not directed at anyone or anything. It's just, you know, those transition happen. And, you, you know, I, I, I do hope that, that when people get a chance to look at this, when things, when we're finally through this, I do hope that's something that the nation and others can look at is, is how do we kind of retain and maybe recreate this ability as a country to, for instance, we have this $22 trillion economy. How can we, we have this enormous thing, the largest thing probably ever built in history, how do we reorient it and direct it at a really big problem? You know, those tools still exist, but they were the, the example I use, and hopefully I don't get in trouble before I should, is that in 1994, the Defense Production Act that we've heard a lot about, you know, the definition of defense, national defense was changed from defense to the all has to using it for anything that's really bad and catastrophic. The problem is, you know, now you have this new tool and you can use it in different ways. The problem is, is, is the federal government had sent, had shut down the office that would have looked at how do you strategically utilize and implement this new authority the year before in the transition from the Cold War era to the post-Cold War era focusing on natural hazards. And since nothing came up, no one would have ever known. It's not, it's just not on anyone's radar after a number of years. That's just, that's just the way it is. And so, for example, the gentleman that ran the DPA office at FEMA in that transition, who actually learned, came into the federal government and learned uh, when he came in, I think, 72, learned from the very people who wrote, for instance, the Defense Production Act in World War II. Um, you know, he retired a year and a half ago, and that, that literally is kind of a transition, I think, of the it. federal government. And you just talked about losing that generational ability, and in this case, kind of that strategic mm -hmm. ability to think really, really big um, in the country. And then, unfortunately, we, we, we got our national, you know, event. Quinn, how did you spell your grandfather's last name? Uh, Foreman, so F-O-R-M-A-N. Um, and I'll actually send you the, the Air Force four years ago did a wonderful video uh, tribute to him, uh, Veterans in Blue, and, and I'll send it to you. But anyone who looks for James Quinn Foreman Air Force, uh, you should be able to find that that tribute. Um, the Air Force did a really, really wonderful job. And, and he has a, a especially uh, great story about returning home from Burma and seeing our aunt Carrie the first time as a little baby and the story of how she first saw her father who she was meeting for the first time. It really is a wonderful story. Uh, I really wanna thank you for taking the time to tell us about your grandfather, Quinn Foreman. It was really meaningful to hear about it directly from you. Uh, and I also just wanna say that it was a, it's just a real privilege to meet you uh, in, it, I, was only, I was about to say in person, this is not in person, but uh, you know, to see you, um, and for all the work you've done this year, and at some point, hopefully, we can get you back for a more full COVID calls discussion. But for now, we're gonna we're gonna leave it at, at that. And and uh, thanks again for your time today, Quinn. Okay, no, thank you again for having me. And I, again, I like to thank everyone who's spoken today, and 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 some really powerful um, stories um, that you know I'm are replicated, unfortunately, you know, by the hour, by the day. Uh, but hopefully, we're gonna get there. Yeah, well, it's good to be with you. Thanks. Thank you. That's going to wrap up our inauguration day memorial episode for COVID calls. And I want to thank my five presenters, Michael Udell, Carla Kearns, Lyric Prince, Tara Haley, and Quinn Lucy today um, for sharing really powerful stories of lives um, 
well-lived and, and lost too soon, and for staying on to talk to me a little bit more about what those lives meant to them and their concerns and fears and their hopes as we still grapple with this pandemic, particularly on this inauguration day, in which we did have a peaceful transfer of power today, and we're hoping, we're all hoping, um, everybody, uh, for uh, some reconciliation and for a better approach to this pandemic in the United States. I want to remind you, you've been listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, tomorrow we'll be talking to the one and only Virginia Heffernan, uh, columnist for the LA Times and the host of Slate's Trump cast. And we will have a, a wide-ranging conversation tomorrow about the inauguration and Joe Biden's speech and about Trump and anything else we want to talk about. So please join us tomorrow, 5 p.m. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.